Let's start with a prayer. We come to you, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by whose blood we have been given access to your throne of grace. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds today as we seek to know you better in your will and your gospel and promises, so that we too may be instruments of reconciliation to the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so... Um, what I'd like to do today is uh, talk about the topic of the mission of the church. Now, we have done that because uh, early on we discussed, I talked to you about um, how the church went from being a Jewish, uh, uh, singularly Jewish event, organization, movement, to going out to the Samaritans first and then to the Gentiles even. So uh, that's all mission, right? That's taking the gospel uh, to the world as Jesus commissioned the church to do, to make disciples of all nations through baptism and teaching. Uh, so the apostles are doing that acts right from the start. Right from the start. But I want to talk today about a particular um, passage, and that's Acts chapter 17. So if you want to, uh, you could turn to it. Uh, Acts chapter 17. That's our focus of our attention for uh, this, this, this morning. Now, uh, before, uh, before I uh, do, do much with it yet, um, let me just say a, a word or two about communicating the gospel in the world, <laughs> uh, the world in which we live. And so one, one term that you may have heard that a lot of people uh, in, in the mission uh, world will use is the term apologetic or apologetics. And um, I, I think you probably, most of you know that in, in theology, the word apology or apologetics does not usually mean to say I'm sorry as if I stepped on your toe and I regret it. Um, that, that, that's an everyday use of the word, but, but in theology and church history, m more ordinarily, the word apology means defense or uh, you know, not, not that God needs our defense as if he's vulnerable, but, uh, but to, may, maybe another word is to, uh, to push away error and explain the truth. Okay. Uh, to, uh, to respond. Okay. That might be another way to respond to criticisms, questions, and, uh, and, and doubts. Okay. So think of that when I say today the word apology, apologetics, and so forth to give a defense. Now, it is, it is true that you don't argue people into faith, okay? It's, it's not as if I can persuade you by the art of rhetoric and logic uh, to believe in the truthfulness of Christianity and therefore you're converted. It's, it's, it's not quite like that, okay? It's not a matter of um, uh, uh, quite so easy, easy because there is much within the Christian gospel, which is difficult, if not impossible, for human reason to completely grasp. So I'm never going to be able to give you a completely reasonable, um, in terms of the limits of human reason, explanation of all aspects of Christianity. It just can't be done. Why would we think that? It could be. Uh, if God is infinite and God is so much um, uh, beyond our experience, and God himself says that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So it, it, it's, we shouldn't be surprised when I say 
You can't ever get to the point where you have mastery over God in, in, in understanding. Okay, so, so therefore you'll never be able to um, put the, 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 the faith into such a frame that it will, uh, like I said, with the use of logic and rhetoric and, and artful persuasion, argue someone into the faith. Okay, um, that's a caveat. Faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. Faith, uh, the, the illumination of the heart, the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the kind of a spiritual understanding and trust in Christ as our Savior is a work of the Holy Spirit. And apart from the Holy Spirit, faith is an impossibility, okay? Uh, because we don't have, our minds are darkened by the fall so that we can't, we are not spiritually discerned. We, we are deceived. We are, um, we are ignorant, but we also hold to the lie. Again, okay, we hold to lies, and uh, we are in enmity with our with God, e- even in our minds. Okay, so uh, so so faith and conversion are only the always the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit uh, works through means, works through the Word. Uh, Paul says, "Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word." Okay, so um, it's it's not God's normal. Uh, mod of op- mode of operation to uh, come down directly onto a person and uh, and you know show himself. Now he has done that you know, the burning bush and there are numerous what we would call theophanies in the Old Testament, uh, particularly, but also in, in the New, I guess, where where God directly comes to a human being and uh, and reveals Himself. Okay. That is not God's, that does not seem to be God's typical way of working. Typically, He works through means. He works through human voices. He works through print. He works through human words, uh, imbued with the power of the gospel. Okay, so, um, that is how God works through the, through preaching, uh, through, through, through speech, uh, and in, in, even, even in writing. So, so, so God works through means. So on the one hand, we don't argue anybody into faith. You can't rationalize anybody into trusting Jesus as their Savior. But you can speak the truth. You can, you can speak against error and you can confess who God is as He's revealed Himself in, uh, through prophets and apostles, but also who God has revealed Himself to be in the man, Jesus Christ. So we can give witness. Okay. In other words, we can testify to what we believe and know to be the truth based on revelation. There is such a thing as a natural knowledge of God. Okay, There is such a thing called natural revelation. And natural revelation refers to God making himself known or God revealing himself through the natural world and through a human capacity to reason. So there is a type of revelation a divine revelation, uh, which comes from God, <clears throat> it's not us ascending to Him, it's still Him making Himself known through the creation and accessible by reason. But it is not enough, uh, it is not enough of a revelation to lead to the Savior and to the plan of salvation. So, uh, so it's very limited. But that is why, though, it's an explanation as to why people of all times and all places uh, with few exceptions, 
acknowledge a God, acknowledge a creator, acknowledge uh, some deity of some kind. We are, we are religious beings by creation, by nature. And, um, and, and that doesn't completely go away with the fall. So you can travel the world and you can look through history and you can find many people who have come up with true things to say that Christians can agree with about spiritual matters. Okay. It's often mixed in with falsehood and confusion, but there is, uh, you know, you'll find at times you'll be able to read Socrates, you'll be able to read Buddha, and you'll come across things that are consistent with what Christianity teaches. And that is because of either natural revelation or uh, because of the kind of knowledge of God that human reason can access. All right. But Christianity, uh, Orthodox Christianity says, but that is not, cannot lead to saving faith. It does not tell us the, who Jesus is. It does not tell us about the incarnation. I can't look at waterfalls and, uh, and mahogany forests and figure out that God, you know, is, is triune and that he, uh, condemns sin in his son on the cross and raises him again. I mean, I can't learn those things except through what we call special revelation. And that is, uh, that is the special revelation is what God speaks to us through prophets and apostles and, uh, through the man Jesus Christ in his flesh and his own words too. Okay. So, um, that's a little bit of, of, uh, foundational stuff for me to talk about, uh, St. Paul and his communication of the gospel in the book, uh, in the chapter, chapter 17 of the book of Acts. He speaks to Jews and he speaks to Greeks in the same chapter. Mostly, it's mostly about his, his conversation with the Greeks. And, uh, but, but I just wanted to say that, that that's my perspective on the apologetic task. We, we, while we can't manipulate people or try to, you know, win an argument into faith in Jesus Christ, but we can respond. I mean, we do, we can use our brains and we can use God given capacities and we can use the life changing power of the gospel, uh, to, to, to talk to people about the questions that they actually have. Okay. We don't have to say, well, faith only comes through hearing the gospel. Therefore, I can completely ignore your questions or completely ignore, uh, your objections. All right. Okay. So, cause I think that, I think that Paul embodies that, that practice in, uh, in, in, in his work. All right. So let's look at, uh, let's look at the first part of the chapter. Acts chapter 17. I'll read the first nine verses. We might maybe actually read quite a bit of it today. Now, when they had passed through, uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Christ whom I proclaim to you is, uh, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason 
seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there was a fine. <laughs> a fine for what? For turning the world upside down. Okay, it seems like maybe actually kind of a small punishment given that accusation. Uh, uh, so what can we learn from this? Here we have the apostle. It says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. Okay, so knowing Jesus Christ did not mean that he severed all ties with Jewish people and Judaism and uh, the Torah and the temple and the synagogue and the hours of prayer. And I mean, yeah, there were some significant changes in relationship to uh, of the of the sinner to the law. Okay, Christ fulfilled the law, and so our relationship to the law is not exactly the same. Okay, anymore, and 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 also the temple. I mean, th there's. There is a great shift in meaning or understanding about those things. But it's not as if Paul completely slammed the door and, and uh, moved on and you know, sought greener paths or anything. He, he continued, as was his custom, uh, to go to the synagogues on the Sabbath, as was what Jews typically did. Now, this is, this is in Thessalonica, which is Greece. So, uh, so when you live, when you were a Jewish person in the first century and you lived outside Jerusalem, Jerusalem being where the temple is, and the temple in Jerusalem, the, the first built by Solomon and then destroyed and then rebuilt, we call it the second temple at the time of Christ, the, the temple in Jerusalem was really the center of, of Jewish religious belief, faith, practice, and life in the first century. Because their understanding was that in the temple, uh, particularly in the Holy of Holies, and even more particularly at the Ark of the Covenant, was where God met earth. That is where God came graciously uh, for, for atonement and redemption to apply his promises to the earth. So if you want to know where God is, you point toward Jerusalem. He's everywhere, but he comes to, he manifests himself in his gracious promises there in the temple, okay? It's very uh, incarnate in, in a sense, you know, stone and mortar. He, this is the place where I can find God. And as you know, there were all sorts of temple rituals and, and regulations about who could go inside that inner, inner sanctuary and when and what the conditions had to be. So there's a whole lot of stuff there that is uh, quite, quite interesting. But just suffice to know that the temple played a very, very central part and the sacrifices and the priesthood. It was in the first century inconceivable to know God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart from the temple. Okay, now that doesn't mean that everybody lives in Jerusalem. So uh, if you could, you made pilgrimages to Jerusalem on ho certain holy days. If you could, you'd go Passover or maybe other other uh, holy days, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, there were times, but not everybody could do that. Maybe you could only do it once in your life, or maybe you could never do it. Um, so that doesn't mean you couldn't be saved. That doesn't mean that the sacrifices in Jerusalem did not at all reach you. Um, 
but it meant that the way the Jewish people practiced their faith was not temple-centric. So they had to, they were dispersed. And so that's where we have the emergence of something called the synagogue. The synagogue is where they gathered. In the Old Testament, there is no synagogue. Okay, it's not, we don't see those until the Gospels. And when, uh, with the synagogue, that is a place to go to have God come to you in the law, in the Torah, in the Word of God, in the prophets, in the Word of God. Just like now, we, uh, we, God comes to us in the Word. Okay? The Word inscripturated, the Word, uh, sacramental, but it is through the Word that God, uh, through the mediation of His Word that He comes to bring His promises to you. Okay? And, and that actually hasn't changed. There's nothing different today about that than there was yesterday. But, um, so you went to the synagogue and you couldn't encounter God, uh, in, in the temple, but you did come into God's real presence with the word. Okay. With the Torah. And the Jews knew this in their way. And that's why they so revered the book or the scroll. And, uh, you learned to read it. You learned it by heart. And, uh, and it was kept safe and you didn't touch it much with your hands. You, you don't want to mess up the ink. You know, it was just revered as, uh, well, understood to be God's revelation to you. Okay. And God's presence through his word. Okay. Um, so that's the synagogue thing. And, and so Paul has no need to completely dispense with it. Certainly at not that point. Okay. Um, Christianity was new. Uh, there hadn't been yet the, the whole rabbinical tradition of, say, the Talmud and all that that comes later, which explicitly rejects Christianity and Jesus Christ and uh, anathematizes all those. I mean, so Paul, this is before that, um, kind of a formal thing. So he goes there and it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Okay, he uses the scriptures. And what does it mean? What are the scriptures? There, at that time, it's what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the Bible, or the Word, or the you know, law. Or, but, uh, um, uh, but remember, they're in Thessalonica, which is Greece. So which Bible are they using? It is almost certainly the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They're probably not reading... Um, the Hebrew text. Maybe they are, but they also have the Septuagint, and that's going to play a big important part in early Christianity already here. So he's using, uh, he's using the Bible to show them how those things were written about Jesus Christ. Those things were written about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us that Moses and the prophets, all that's written in them, it's about him. Okay, he says that. He says that on the day of his resurrection, on the day he rose from the dead, when he's walk, uh, he encounters two followers on the road to Emmaus, right? And they are very confused because they don't understand the events that have happened. And uh, and it's and it says Luke twenty four. And he explained to them how everything written in the law and the prophets is about him. Now the 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 Old Testament, the, what we call the Old Testament, or sometimes we'll call the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, they, uh, they're about Jesus. Okay. It's a Christological book. And if you try to read it apart from that, you miss the point. Even Jesus tells us that. Okay. You'll miss the point if you read it 
in a, in a, in a, through lenses that are not Jesus Christ. And I make a point of this because that is, in fact, the way, uh, I mean, certainly if you're a Jewish scholar or, or, or a secular scholar, you're not going to read the Old Testament in terms of messianic prophecy fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. But even within the circles of Christendom, uh, that has become unfashionable to read the Bible, to read the Old Testament with uh, Jesus in mind. Yeah, that's unfashionable in circles that, that profess, at least historically, to have Christian origins. So you'll find pastors, you'll find uh, nominally Christian professors, you'll find seminaries that teach the Old Testament, and they, um, they avoid, uh, intentionally try to avoid, uh, um, uh, finding Christological interpretation. That's not always the way it is, but you'll, you will see that. Okay. And I, and that's troubling and this should trouble us because the Old Testament remains our Bible too. Okay. Because it's about Jesus. <laughs> um, in, uh, uh, in my church history class, I talk about a, uh, second century, uh, church, uh, figure named Marcion who rejects the Old Testament. There was a lot of question in the early church, like today, about what is the Christian uh, relationship to the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in there that we don't do. There's a lot of stuff in there that we don't, that seems very, maybe strange to us. And, uh, and um, some of it is a bit uh, hard, okay, hard to read. And uh, so... So I, so I understand, I understand that, but Christians have always tried to figure out how do we, and even today, there are Christians who will, uh, churches that will never talk about the Old Testament. They never teach on it. They never preach on it. They never, or almost never. And so they aren't intentionally, outwardly rejecting it, but by practice, basically ignore it. And that's not good. Two thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. Okay. So God reveals himself and, uh, particularly Jesus and, uh, through the Old Testament. That's what Paul is doing. He is, he is reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the fulfillment. Okay. Um, all right. And some believed. Some were persuaded and, and believed. Not everybody. And, uh, some were Jews. And, you know, when it says devout Greeks, I think it says, I think that's the term. Uh, yeah, devout Greeks in verse four. Um, that's referring to what they called the God-fearers. It's that it's that group of Gentiles who liked Judaism but didn't want to convert completely. They why were these uh, Gentiles attracted to Judaism? Largely because of its uh, monotheism and its high ethical teaching, and they heard the gospel. Okay, I mean they heard the gospel, and so people were attracted to that, but they didn't necessarily want to convert all the all the way so but they're there they're in the synagogue and they too are hearing this and they are also uh converting and what's the reaction of of the many of the leading jews to this is to uh to resort to violence <laughs> uh, they are upset they form a mob they set the city in uproar and they attack and um so from the very beginning the christian message has been met with opposition, but also violent opposition. And we, we see that all through Acts, and I've talked plenty in here about persecution and martyrdom. But um, 
but I do like the line. I really do like the line in verse six, where they, where the opponents of the of Paul said, "These men have turned the world upside down," because that is pretty much accurate. Okay, that is in fact true. Uh, sometimes the enemies of Christ speak the truth about Christ unbeknownst, right? They don't necessarily. Um, yes, the wor- but that's a good thing, okay? Uh, th- it's a good thing that the order and, uh, and powers of this world have been set on their head. And there's a reversal that takes place. The, the, uh, the poor, you know, it's all over the Bible, you know, uh, look at Mary's Magnificat, okay, in, in Mary's song in Luke, what is it, Luke 3, Mary's song, <coughs> where she visits her, uh, her, um, relative Elizabeth, and she sings the, the, the words that we have recorded, and we call the Magnificat. And if you look through that, Luther wrote a little commentary on it, and he said that Mary is one of the best theologians there's ever been. Because she interpreted the Old Testament very well and very Christologically. And she understood, because all over the Old Testament, there's this reversal. There's this turning the world on its head. Okay, The poor will be exalted. The rich will be set down. The full will be sent away from the table. The hungry will be invited. That's the reversal language. That's all over the Old Testament. And it's all over the words of Jesus. Jesus talks like that frequently. And... Uh, you know, so did his mother. <laughs> so she, you know, he, I'm sure he heard that growing up, uh, that kind of interpretation of the Bible, that turning the world on its head. So it should not surprise us when, uh, when our message and our proclamation and our living out our faith is met with opposition, even violent opposition. Because we too are part of turning the world on its head. It's a new world. Okay, a new world is being born out of the old, and uh, and if you're in the old one, it it it's hurt, it hurts and and it's scary and it's confusing and you resist. So I, I I just like that turn of phrase that turn the world upside down. Um, I didn't fact check this before I came in, but just because it just came to mind. But my memory tells me that uh, at the end of the Revolutionary War, American Revolution, at the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, when uh, when um, what, what Cornwallis surrendered to General Washington, that the uh, that the British soldiers marched in, they were surrendering, and they played a tune. They pl- they had a band that was playing a tune, and the name of the tune um, was recognizable to everybody, and the name of the tune was "The World Turned Upside Down." Okay, now I don't know if it's directly referring to this, but to them, the British Empire, you know, uh, sur- the British are surrendering to uh, this ragtag group. Uh, that to them was, you know, inconceivable. The world must be completely inside out now. It's similar. And more so, ever so much more so. <laughs> um, so this helps us, I think, recall the, the very... Um, uh, the very uh, almost shocking nature of the gospel, but shocking in a good way. So, so um, I think it's it's either J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or both of them. I think it's Tolkien. Co- he's a Christian, and he coined a term, uh, "eucatastrophe." Eucatastrophe, not Y-O-U, but E-U catastrophe. 
Okay, well, what's a catastrophe? If something's catastrophic, it means that things are falling apart, things are being turned upside down, things are, you know, uh, very, very opposite of what you want. And, but the word, you, the, the, pre, the Greek prefix you, EU, means good. Okay, so it's a, it's a good thing for the whole thing to be kind of pulled inside out because now, actually, is put in rights, is put in order. Whereas before, was the darkness and confusion, and now is the reality that actually makes sense. Okay, so uh, so there's nothing more sane than uh, than life in Christ. Okay, not insane though to the world. That's how it is. All right. Let me. So I'm going to skip uh, the part where Paul and Silas go to Berea because I want to talk about Athens and his Paul's address at the Areopagus. So verse 16, well, I'll pause first. Does anybody, because this is going to be shifting gears. Okay. All right. Uh, so now, so Paul's now in Athens. He's still in Greece. He's not in Thessalonica. He is, he's now in Athens. In Thessalonica, he's with the synagogue. He's reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures, the Hebrew prophets. But he, this is different. Okay? I want you to note the difference in Athens. Uh, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Athens was um, the center of Greek philosophy, the center of, of learning throughout, uh, it, it, you know, it was widely recognized as uh, a major cultural center, major center of philosophy and learning uh, for, for a very long time, even into the Christian era for, for a very long time. And um, I don't think it's until, uh, well, centuries into the Christian era b before the Christians tried to kind of actually stamp out some of the pagan academies in Athens. I forget if it was Emperor Justinian or, or which, but, uh, but so, so even up to then. And, and uh, Athens is a very religious place, as Paul himself observes, and is full of idols, and he's provoked. <laughs> The word there uh, could easily be interpreted, um, uh, translated as irritated or um, angered, because uh, that word is used throughout the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to God's wrath towards uh, towards idols. And let me just let me just share with you um, a piece of a text that you may or may not know. This is actually a text from the Septuagint, but it's not in the Hebrew Bible. It's what we call the Apocrypha. Okay, so we don't give it scriptural authority, but it still tells us what people in, the, in that period really thought. Okay, what Jews, pious Jews thought. So this is a book called Wisdom of Solomon. It's actually quite edifying to read. I, I wouldn't put it in the level as divine revelation, but it's still quite edifying to read. It's a book of wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon. And uh, maybe not written by him, but it's reflecting him. And uh, here's a quote from it. Therefore, there will be a visitation also upon the heathen idols. Because though part of what God uh, created, they became an abomination. Okay, Snares for human souls and a trap for the feet of the foolish. Foolish, for the idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication, and the invention of them was the corruption of life. Okay, so if there's one thing that the that the nation of Israel has learned is that God hates idolatry. Okay, that's one thing that throughout the Old Testament 
uh, you know, hopefully that should be unambiguous. Okay. And it is for Paul. Here he is, you know, this, uh, one who's been bred to oppose idol worship and he's in a city filled with them. Okay. So, so that's how he's, so he's not coming in, you know, he's, his mood is, is set on edge. It's like eating sour grapes. Your teeth are set on edge. And, uh, and he too here, okay, starts out going back into the synagogue. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. But he doesn't stay in the synagogue when he's in Athens. What's the first thing it says he does afterwards? After he's with the synagogue, he goes to the Agora, uh, the marketplace. He goes to the marketplace every day, uh, uh, reasoning with them uh, for with those who happen to be there. Okay, so culturally that was quite appropriate to go into a public area in uh, in in Greece and and just spout off. Okay. And people would listen, or they would argue, or they would heckle you, or they'd throw, um, you know, rotten vegetables or dead cats or whatever they threw. And uh, yeah, uh, George Whitfield, uh, the the English evangelist, um, yeah, they th someone said they threw a dead cat at him. Um, so he is uh, he's in the marketplace. Quite interesting. So he's with the Jews, and now he's in the marketplace, which is everyone, everyone and anyone. Okay. Now that would be difficult for people to do today in American society. It would be, um, it, it isn't culturally acceptable for me to go into uh, the Irvine spectrum and stand there in front of what Macy's and uh, you know declaim the truths of God. That would be I might actually be <laughs> disciplined uh, by the authorities if I did that. I do know I do have a, uh, an acquaintance who um, is a pastor in England. He's not Lutheran, but he's a pastor in England, and he does that once a week. He goes into his town center and and just and just preaches and and hands out Bible. I don't, and sometimes he has people talk to him and sometimes he has people who argue with. So it's not really something we could do today, but uh, at least not easily. But uh, but he does that. So he's he's changing his audience. And um, and uh, so what's the lesson for us? Right. The lesson for us is this uh, uh, interest. And passers-by, and everybody. Okay, so that's quite, um, quite interesting. Okay, but verse verse eighteen, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and uh, and some said, "What does this babbler wish to say?" Okay, so there's a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> that's they're they're looking down their nose, right? Uh, this babbler, um, uh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Okay. Well, that's what people accused in Athens a couple centuries earlier. That's what people accused Socrates of doing, and they killed him. <laughs> preaching foreign divinities is what they said he was doing. Uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here he, it's, Luke says, okay, they thought, they said he was preaching foreign divinities. What he was really preaching says he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's preaching Jesus, which is shorthand for saying he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching all of all there is to say about Christ. Okay? So he's preaching the gospel, which which means all the all the saving work of Jesus Christ. But Paul but Luke specifically mentions the resurrection. Okay? He doesn't specifically pull out and say he preached about the cross and the atonement, although that certainly would have been there. Forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. But he, but, but he particularly mentions the resurrection because in Greece, that is, uh, for the Greek philosophers, that doctrine is going to be particularly odious. 
they're going to resent that one more than the other things, okay? And uh, because there's nothing like it in, Christ in Greek philosophy. There's no, even if, you know, so, so some Greeks uh, believed in an afterlife of some kind. But, um, but not everyone. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Epicureans, for instance, the Epicureans, we think of Epicurean, what, as, as, you know, I like to, I'm a foodie. I like to eat out. I have good taste in wine. And, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Epicurean, that's fine. It's modern use of the term. But the Epicureans followed Epicurus. And they did believe in, uh, the life of the pleasures of the flesh, but not what you think. They didn't believe in gluttony and getting drunk and partying all night and, you know, loud music. They actually were opposed to that because they thought ultimately that would make you unhappy. If you drink all night, you get hungover. So that's bad. So they wanted, uh, they, they, they taught a calm, uh, life where you enjoyed the higher things of life, like friendship and, uh, maybe the arts and stuff. But they did not believe in an afterlife as part of the live now ethic okay they did not believe in an afterlife so certainly not um, I mean they they didn't you know they didn't believe and and whatsoever God there was whatsoever God there was according to the Epicureans had no interaction with us so removed the Stoics were more like pantheists they thought that God was sort of in and in, in, in everything and in us and they did believe in an ongoing existence, but not a personal afterlife like, like we think of. You continue to be you after you die. For them, it's more like you're absorbed into the world soul or something. Um, so neither of these particular groups are going to... Th that, that is, that is going to be unintelligible to them. And some of them, as we read through it, uh, some of them outwardly reject it. Others say, we'd like to keep talking. We want to hear more. Okay, uh, but uh, but but I, I I just highlight that resurrection not only of Jesus' body but of of our bodies because we are in Christ. And uh, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, um, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting?" Well, it's not new; it's new to them. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So they liked conversation. They liked, that was a big part of the culture. I think it's um, centuries later, I think it's, uh, I think it might be Gregory of Nyssa. One of the Gregories in the fourth century was talking about not, not Greece, but, um, you know, his, uh, Alexandria, I suppose, that even the fishmongers were debating uh, high Christology. Homo usius, is he one substance or two? So there have been times where even people who are Ill illiterate, um, where the life of the mind had more uh, value than maybe our time, where we like to, we don't like to be challenged. We don't want to hear new, uh, new things. We, we want the comfort. We want, we want comfort. So it's different. Um, Paul standing, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. All right. So he starts out saying something kind. Okay. <laughs> it's not a bad evangelism technique. You don't start out by blistering people. Um, he, he starts out saying something kind, something he approves of. You're very religious. You like God stuff. 
awesome. Um, you know, so he's good with that. And, but, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, so he went from saying, rah, rah, you're very religious, to now saying, but you're wrong. <laughs> or you're ignorant. That's basically what he's saying. You're ignorant. Okay, you, you don't know, but you know you don't know, so that's good. Okay, that's at least good. You, you know you don't know, but you know there's something m probably more. He says, let me identify the God you don't know. Now, he's not saying that, the, that whatever particular concept you have when you bow down to that altar is Yahweh. He, he's not identifying that practice as kind of um, uh, you know, anonymous worship of, of the true God. What he's just simply saying is that I'm telling you about the God you don't know. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to reveal to you an unknown God. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. Okay, the God of the world, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, so God is the creator. He starts with creation. Right. So, so, so there's a s suspicion in some Greek philosophy. There's a suspicion about the material world. That the, that the material world is incompatible with uh, spiritual advancement or spiritual thriving. That the material world mostly drags you down. And salvation is to escape it. <laughs> I want to, you know, if, the, if, if my body is a prison, I want to be gone from it. But, but that is not Christianity. It's not Judaism. The creation is good. The material world is good. God made it, and it's good. He made all that is in it. Um, but he is not it. Okay? He is not the creation. Uh, he does not live in temple made by hands, nor is he uh, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, th this statement shows that the God uh, who created all things continues to be in uh, working in the world. Okay, this is not a uh, Epicurean God that, or a deist, right? A deistic God who, who maybe like a clockmaker builds it, winds up the spring, and goes about other business, um, and maybe even forgets all about it, and the spring breaks, and too bad because he forgot. Um, that's a deist thing, right? That's that is a that's a skeptical thing that isn't atheism. That there's, but, but the idea that God intervenes, that God knows your name, uh, that God, uh, walks among you, that God even cares, okay? Um, uh, certainly that God becomes part of the created order through the Virgin. Um, but, uh, so that's not, a, that is not a generally a Greek mindset that God is involved in the world. And sometimes Christianity, later Christianity, because it is influenced by Platonism, for instance, kind of gets a little of that suspicion of whether you can be really spiritual and, you know, kind of like earth, earth, <laughs> you know, uh, your bodies and, and so forth. We worship our bodies, but we also, in, in our time, uh, people worship their body, but at the same time, uh, we loathe our bodies. 
our, our culture loathes the body. In some ways it worships the body, in other ways we despise the body, so we're always trying to change it. We're always trying to remanufacture it. We're always trying to redefine it. Uh, we're, we're trying to rebuild it in our own light, to our own preferences, as if it's a piece of clay that we mold. Okay? That the body is malleable, that the body is our instrument, that I can use or not uh, in the way I wish. It's my body, my choice. I do what I want because it's my instrument. It, you know, the real me is the is the mind or the spirit. The body is just the, the you know the prosthesis, the vehicle, right? So, the, as if the body is a prosthesis for the mind. That's a very contemporary view. Um, it's not quite maybe what the Greeks were thinking, but there's this there's this uh, complicated and uh, sometimes uh, corrupted relationship that human beings have with the body, okay? Which, there's a whole thing there. <laughs> um, but he made you, and he continues to give life. Uh, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, okay? That's Luther in, uh, you know, in the small catechism. He continues to sustain my body and life. He gives me all that I need um, spiritually and, and materially. Now, verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Um, this is kind of a lovely idea, too. He made from one man, Adam. Okay, so there's a reference to Adam. And, and every nation of mankind, um, there's a brotherhood there. And, and later on, he does talk about us all human beings, in a, in a sense, as being God's offspring. Okay. Um, Jew, Gentile, we know that's a theme for Paul, right? Jew, Gentile, uh, slave-free, male-female, we're one in Christ. Those, those things do not give you status or high or low in the kingdom. Uh, so, so he's got this very, um, uh, you know, universal brotherhood of humankind notion there, which um, is, is very nice, very good. Um, but that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he does this uh, much commented on technique of quoting Greek poets, pagan poets. And uh, he does it one more time. In his, in his corpus, he does it one more time in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, um, that is much commented upon because what's he doing? You know, why is he quoting to the Athenians, whom he's trying to convert to the, uh, the true God, why is he quoting their pagan thinkers uh, to do it? And is that a good idea for us? Uh, should we appropriate the things of the world? You know, you see it all the time. I've done it. I'm guilty of it frequently of, you know, identifying themes or ideas or motifs in popular culture that are consistent with Christianity and pointing it out. Done it many times, right? Oh, there's a, there's a dying and rising or there's a person in a movie giving himself to save others. I mean, I've, I've done, you know, talked about Lord of the Rings or, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan. I mean, there's all kinds of times when we at least a lot of pastors do that. Some don't, but, um, and that can definitely be taken way too far. Uh, and we've, we've done that, but isn't he kind of doing that? I mean, isn't he, what it does tell us 
is he ha he he knows it, okay? Because there's no evidence that he's you know reading from notes. They they dragged him in and he gave a speech. Uh, it's it's it, he's just talking. So I can't you know I can't quote things I don't know. I can't quote things that I haven't read. So that at the very minimum, Saint Paul the Pharisee the the Jew of Jews is reading pagan Greek literature, which would not be a common thing amongst his, his countrymen. They would know this material. What good is there? I mean, even Christians, a lot of times Christians say, well, you know, we should totally separate. Okay, kind of like the Amish. We should totally separate, or the fundamentalists. We should totally separate from the worldly things. And Christians have done that, and, you know, there's time to do that, but but Paul isn't completely separated from those things. He must have read them, at the very least read them, or had them read, or maybe he attended the play, although probably not. But um, anyway, so I just think that's very interesting, and that is, I think, an indicator to us that uh, as Christians, we don't only have to read the Bible in order to be, a, you know, uh, fruitful, thriving individuals and servants of the king. Uh, to only read the Bible as if there's no knowledge outside the Bible, which means anything. Okay. Now, there's some who do that. But uh, but Paul, Paul doesn't. Now, when he went to the synagogues, do you think he did that? When he was in the synagogue, do you think he's quoting Menander? Um, I highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. Unless this is a very cosmopolitan kind of, you know, white wine, uh, you know, <laughs> very uh, uh, cultured synagogue. But no, they're probably not going to. He's a, and what he's not doing here is reasoning from the scriptures as he did in the synagogue. So that does teach us something that's called contextualization. Contextualization means that you are mindful of your context when you are communicating. Okay. Now it can go. It can go overboard. You can alter your message, even unintentionally. You could alter your message or alter the uh, meaning of your or the tone of your message by appropriating things for your from your contacts. That's not a. That's not good. That's bad. Um, but but there are, certainly are. It does certainly make sense to be aware if I'm talking to people of a very different culture about the things of God that I would look for some common ground, certainly in the first conversation. Okay, You want to bring them into the fullness of God's revelation um, outside of culture, but, uh, but we are cultural beings, and so I don't assume that every person I talk to must have the same values, assumptions, beliefs, and practices that a 21st century American white man has. I don't. You know, I shouldn't. Um, be aware of that contextualization. Not a bad thing. Can be can be done badly. Paul's doing it. Um, and you know, so verse twenty-eight. Uh, in him we live and move and have our being. It says down in the footnotes, probably from Epimenides of Crete. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, from Eratus's uh, poem Phenomena. Phenomena. Okay, and like I said, he, he does quote a playwright, Menander, in 1 Corinthians 15, too. It's probably the only three times. And you don't see Jesus doing that. You don't see, I don't think you see very often, if ever, I can't think of any other times except in those, 
instance, the instance that I just mentioned, where that's done. So it's not, it's not a constant kind of thing. Well, I, I guess you could d dispute me that maybe John 1, Logos, uh, and there are other, other possible examples, but actually quoting uh, a pagan writer is uh, quite interesting and unusual. All right, but he does. And uh, we are God's offspring. I only have a couple minutes. But we are God's offspring. Let me just say a word about that. Well, let me finish his message. Um, we, ought to, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, imagination, and man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Okay, But that's over now. <laughs> because now we know. Um, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, right? To turn the word, um, you know, the, the word metanoia, the Greek word for repentance literally means to change your mind, to have a change of mind, a change, okay, in your, in your mind. <laughs> the Hebrew word is shuv, which is turn. So both those give us a feeling for what he means by repent. And, um, uh, but now uh, he commands all people everywhere to, to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. This is the second Adam. He talked about the man through whom all human beings come. Now we have the righteous man who will judge the world. Obviously Jesus, but he doesn't mention him by name. And, uh, and, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he does the resurrection thing and then he knows he has to get that. So he's talked creation, he's talked the man Jesus Christ, uh, and he's talked the resurrection of the body. It's a lot to get in in a short sermon. And he, those are particularly things the philosophers needed to understand about the Christian message. Um, what about the atonement? What about the cross? What about crucifixion? Um, it, you know, it, it, it says earlier in another place in, that he was preaching Jesus. But, uh, but I suspect it's not that Paul was omitting those things. I think he probably got interrupted. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. And others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So um, maybe maybe he didn't get to say his whole thing, but, um, but the resurrection is a central part of the Christian proclamation um, that uh, uh, that you see it time and again in the Book of Acts. And for him here is particularly used as um, the, to show that God assures that His plan is going to be done. He, the, the the plan of salvation is vindicated, but guaranteed, sealed, clinched by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, apart from which your faith would be in vain. 1 Corinthians, right? 15. Okay, I'm done. That's it. Uh, all for Acts. So thank you for your attention. I don't want to keep you from worship. And uh, uh, it's been fun.